0: A
1: podcast one production. Hi, I'm Christopher Pine, and welcome to Pine Time. For years, I've been on the receiving end of a barrage of questions, some would say abuse, from the media and other politicians. But I've tried to keep it together and hopefully I've had a successful career in politics. But now I'm out of the game. And I'm risking it all to step out of my comfort zone and embrace a new world of media, to turn the tables on my guests, so you can hear for the first time stories that you've never heard before, as they succumb to what some people are kindly describing as the Pine Effect. My guest today on Pine Time is Linton Crosby. Now, of course, Sir Linton Crosby, we'll get to that later in the podcast. Linton Crosby is not exactly a household name in Australia, but is quickly becoming a household name in the UK. And he's a political strategist, has started a very successful business called Crosby Texter, which is a strategy consultancy company with now many parts, which we'll also talk about during this podcast. Failed candidate, which we'll we'll get to that. Most people wouldn't know that Linton Crosby and I go back a very long way uh, because I joined the Liberal Party in 1984 in December and you would have been one of the very first people that I met in 1985. You would have been a preschool, I would have thought. And uh, we were... I'm a little bit younger than Linton, not dramatically younger, but you were one of the big figures of the South Australian Liberal Party. You know, state executive member campaign coordinator, young Liberal president, and I was, you know, a starry-eyed young Liberal, Liberal student, member of the Burnside branch. So Linton was, to me, a very big figure in the Liberal Party. But I must admit, I never expected you to end up in London running Boris Johnson's campaigns and Theresa May's campaigns and one of the Western democracy's foremost political strategists. Did, was that your planned career path?
0: I grew up in Kadena, a country right. town in South Australia. That's not what you're thinking about when you're growing up in Kadena. But then again, I didn't think I'd see you on radio either, Christopher. So <laughs> we all end up in places we never quite, never quite expect.
1: That's right. And, but you stood, you, your first foray into politics was the 1982 Norwood election. It was, yeah. You I ready? remember it well. You've got a very funny line though, at least you self-deprecatingly say you, you took a marginal seat and made it into a safe labour one.
0: Yeah, I not the whole uh, whole electorate, <laughs> right? so uh, once people got to know me, they didn't want to vote for me.
1: <laughs> but, and you never tried again?
0: No, I decided that uh, behind the scenes is uh, better and you can make a contribution in that way. Yeah. These days, of course, you know we do political activity, we do other things as well, but... I decided it wasn't for me. I yeah. admire people who are prepared to put their name on a ballot paper and be judged by their peers. Yeah, I just didn't want to be one of those
1: people. Yeah, but you're right, of course. There's now so many different ways to impact politics, even not even going into politics. I mean, I had um, I caught up with a friend here yesterday, and they were saying that very thing. That 25 years ago, they would have wanted to go into politics because they thought that was the way they'd get their levers on the hands of power, their hands on the levers of power, and. Affect government policy, but they said now there's so many other ways to impact policy that being a member of parliament is not the first thing that they immediately think about. They think about think tanks and universities mm. and business and boards, and in your case, starting Crosby Texter, what in 2005 was that 2002. about? 2002. 2002 has impacted very dramatically, globally. You'd have to say.
0: Well, we've we've been fortunate to find ourselves in. Interesting places at interesting times. It's something you never expect. When we started the business here in Australia in Canberra in serviced offices, we thought we could build a distinct small business that engaged people on political and other issues based on research generally with my friend and colleague Mark Texter. Yep. But over time, opportunities arose. And, you know, we've been very fortunate to be able to take advantage of them. And, you know, I would never have foreseen the prospect of being in the UK and running elections there or being in some of the other places where we've been involved in elections in recent times
1: as well. And so why why did you decide to leap into the UK? Well, it all goes back
0: to um, 2004 and I'd known Michael Howard, who was then opposition leader. And right. The Tory party had gone through a difficult patch, a leadership change from Ian Duncan Smith, who was the leader, and Michael Howard had become the leader and he was the sort of leader you put in, not as a. this is not a criticism, he's, he, he was someone who'd been around politics a long time. Safe pair of hands. Safe pair of hands. The party had had some false starts and they decided, if we're going to be competitive, and bear in mind, Tony Blair was the Prime Minister then and he was still at his high point. Uh, the impact of going into Iraq and some of those decisions that later condemned him amongst his own supporters, let alone the public more broadly, they hadn't really taken hold. Michael Howard who had been a minister in Majors Government, agreed to sort of become the leader by acclamation, so there was no contest as such. And one night I was literally at a dinner here in Sydney for somebody, for a friend, and I got a, um, it was a winter's night, got a phone call from Michael Howard saying, I've got a proposition to put to you, which was for me to come and help run the election campaign, which was to be held in 2005. What a lot of people don't realise about the UK is up until that time, Essentially, election campaigns were run by the chairman of the Conservative Party, mm. and that person was a member of parliament, mm. and so it's quite different to Australia where the professional strand of um, contrib- contributing to politics started a lot earlier.
1: Right, and that's, that was really your path. You took that that path from member of the state executive, in fact I was at the state executive the night that Martin Cameron's sisters were killed in that car accident. That's right, that? I remember that, yeah. I remember you ra- I was on executive because I was young Liberal president. You were campaign coordinator and you raced out of the room, or Martin raced out of the room. Martin raced out of the room, yeah. And then you followed him and you came back in and told us what had happened. That yeah. was a terrible tragedy. For it was him. a terrible, terrible night. Terrible. That's how far we go back. But so you, you did the p- political apparatchik route for a while and then went out and worked in business for a little a second, while. Yeah. And then you came in to be the state director in Queensland for the Liberal Party. I did, with Paul Everingham, who'd just been put in That's as right. the President. And that, you know, was a difficult time for the Liberal Party in Queensland, but then you parlayed that, which you did it as well. It always as, is. It always is, is a difficult time. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and you parlayed that into Deputy Director to Andrew Robb. Correct. In Canberra, yep. nationally, and then elections in 96, 98, 01, 04, all of which were won. Yes, which is not a bad record.
0: They were good elections to be involved in, one way or another. I I was the director for '98 and 2001. Yeah, but
1: campaign director in '96. In
0: '96, I did the marginal seats. I was the deputy
1: yeah. director. Right. Um,
0: I got all of the losses out early. So yeah, <laughs> doing Queensland and some of the elections in South Australia. You sort of, you get to learn from the losses, and actually, it's half a joke, but it's also a serious point because mm. when you see, when you understand why you didn't win, why you weren't successful, then it helps you understand what you need to do to be successful. So 96, you know, was a great election after the, the election that, you know, the unlosable election mm, in 93. 93, yeah. yeah. When I got elected, actually. You got elected, yeah. Something unlosable. happened <laughs> Something good happened. I didn't say good. I just said something happened. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you, Linton. <laughs> Carolyn and I were the only happy people on March the 13th, yeah, that 1993. Was... Oh, I remember. And in fact, the advertiser wrote that in their story about the win in Sturt, that it's, it's something like the, the only people at the Liberal Party, Wake as they called it, who were waving and smiling were Carolyn and Christopher Pine, I we were not yet married actually, Carolyn Twelfthree and Christopher Pine. I, I remember it because I was coming back from, I
0: was out of town the night before just very briefly and I was driving in early, stopped at a newsagent to pick up the papers. Yeah to get to the Queensland Division Liberal Party and this is the 93 election. And I went to the newsagent to pick up the papers and the guy said, enjoy those while you can because they'll be a whole lot more expensive if John Hewson gets elected and puts a GST on everything and I thought, oh, this is not a good start to the day.
1: No, that isn't. No. Well, unfortunately, that was was a disastrous election but in 96, 98, 01, 04, you played a very important role in keeping the Howard government in office but you also... Tell us about the call you had with John Howard in 98 when you had to <laughs> ring him when we were looking like we were losing.
0: Well, 98, of course, was the... the one term. One term, GST election. John Howard had decided to put tax reform on the agenda and it was my first election as campaign director, so it was pretty important for me, important for Australia too. But um, we decided that we would do a... Uh, a nationwide exit poll to understand what, what had happened. And uh, the poll came in. I won't won't say what the... And it wasn't... Tex didn't do the poll. Um, Mark Dexter didn't do the polling that night because of capacity issues we used a subcontractor. And the poll said where something or other... And these are the numbers which, as it turned out, were accurate for the overall vote because right. you might remember... 49.3. Yeah, 40, yeah 48.5, I think. But yeah. but But... but we we got less than fifty percent mm. of the two party preferred vote nationally, but we had enough seats that we were able to and some very good local members that we were able to quarantine sufficient seats mm. to hold the majority, although reduced, even though not getting fifty percent of the vote. So it was accurate, but I had I got it came in and I looked at this fax sheet. It was the old days of faxes and there was no cover sheet, it was just the results and a message about what had happened to us. That we're elated. Or yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, words to that effect, and and uh, and so I had to ring the PM who was at uh, Kirribilli House and break the news. Mm. And uh, you know, it's, it's one of those calls you think, "Oh God, I've got to do this," but you don't really want to. No. And he uh, he was it was very uh, it was a very short conversation. It was sort of like, well, Thanks, mate, and speak to you later. And that was
1: it. <laughs> I imagine when he got off the phone, he and Jeanette would have had... Um, I
0: gather they <laughs> gathered the family together in the, told them. the front room and told yeah. them. That, and then the, as the guests arrived, um, it, remind, it would have... I wasn't there, but I can only guess it would be a bit like uh, I was told of a, about a hen's night one night that just before the hen's night was due to start, the father of the then-to-be groom rang up the um, fiancé to say the wedding was off. And uh, as everyone turned up at the house for the hen's night, it was sort of like, don't say anything, don't say anything, the wedding's off. It, and, and people would sort of quietly go into a room and stand around and know, <laughs> not know what to say. Well, it would be the same sort of thing, I
1: think. Yes, it would have been shocking. And, of course, listeners have, probably a lot of listeners would not realise because it's now so long ago that we'd been in opposition from 83 to 96 and it was we hate being in opposition in the coalition. We're not we're the party that's made to be in government, right? Of course, because we're sort of we're managerial people. We think, well, if you're not in government, what are you doing? So being in opposition was hell, and we're not used to opposition since '49. We'd basically been mm. in government, except for uh, Whitlam, right? So we'd been in opposition for 13 years, which meant we'd had a horrendously disunited party, and in '96 we'd won hugely and thought, right. You know, is it. The world has been righted. <laughs> We're back on the right side of the house. So to lose in '98 after less than three years was ca- would have been catastrophic.
0: Sure, would have been <laughs> absolutely <laughs> catastrophic. My career would have been sh-
1: cut short. Well, that's right. You see, you would have been the the losing campaign director in your first campaign, and then of course we've gone on. History's shown we went on to win. You know, multiple times, and then been re-elected again under. Tony Abbott, and now been in government and won another three elections. So most people think that we've been in government a lot, but at that time we were kind of... It wasn't that way. It wasn't that way. So losing in 98, people would have been thinking, what the hell happened and how... We would have just started a new party. I mean, the whole history would have been... The place would have blown up, I would have thought. Would have absolutely blown up because that had been our history since Federation. You know, when the party wasn't winning, we created a new party. Mm. Mm. (laughs) So a long non-Labour party since forty nine has been not the usual part of Federation since from nineteen hundred one to 1949. So it's been an interesting thing. And, of course, if you had lost that election, if we'd lost that election, I was in the Parliament, your career would have been entirely different. Probably would have been. What would you have done, do you think? Opened well, a news agency or something? Gone yeah, no. go back to that guy who gave me the newspapers.
0: <laughs> I would have gone back to the private sector and just yeah. potted around, I suppose.
1: But the history has proven to be opposite. You, in 04... You finished up, actually finished up before 04, didn't you? And um,
0: Yeah, I, quit, yeah. I, I resigned, you know, stood down as director. I thought two out of two is good enough for me. I'm yeah. going to do something else. And, uh, you know, I'd had a good working relationship with John Howard and I, I enjoyed it. I've always enjoyed, like you, I've enjoyed politics. Mm. Yeah. I was, wasn't as young as you and I joined, but you are about the same age as my wife was when she joined. Um, Dawn. Yep, Dawn. And it was, um, it was a good chance to, to do other things.
1: In two thousand and two, yeah, and that's when he started Crosby Texter. Started Crosby Texter with, with Mark, Mark Texter, Mark
0: Texter, who was a Darwin boy who'd been uh, had been pollster at the Liberal Party, gone out on his own earlier, and working with Richard Worthlin, who'd been Ronald Reagan's pollster. That's right. Richard Worthlin was Reagan's pollster from the time Reagan ran as governor of California in mm. six, 1966. Is that before you were born? <laughs> yes, yeah. it was. Uh, and uh, <laughs> and uh, and right through until Ronald Reagan retired as the then. Oldest ever American president. Yes. In uh, 82 or 86,
1: whenever it was. 88. 88, you're right. 88. Jimmy Carter in 80. 88. Yeah. So then Britain has been a great success for you. I mean, you've been there for now, living there sort of on and off for many years. Yeah. You've run mayoral campaigns, general elections, uh, become part of the furniture really uh, to the extent where um, after the 2016, or in 2016, you were knighted. Well, it was, which yeah. is terribly exciting. It was because you can't get knighted in Australia anymore, right? So,
0: well, well Tony tried for a few <laughs> short periods. For a short period, go,
1: that didn't go well. No. What did you think when you heard that?
0: Well, you know, I can hardly criticise somebody for being knighted or accepting a knighthood. No, no but, but you must have but, been a bit shocked. Well, I think you know, time and place. Australia had moved on. Even Rupert Murdoch tweeted against that,
1: which surprised yeah, me. Yeah. <laughs> probably surprised him. <laughs> and Andrew Bolt. Um, but that's a real thing to be a knight nowadays, you know, in Australia because they used to be quite common when we were, not common, but when we were growing up, you know, in, our, in the Liberal Party branches in the eastern suburbs where you and I both um, knocked around, there were quite a few knights and dames. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Sir yeah, Harold I, I, Wilson and yeah. people like Sir that. Sir Keith Wilson. And, and Sir Harold. Yeah. No, Harold. Yeah, Harold, Harold and, Young. Harold Young. Sir yeah. Harold Young and Lady Young. He had the farm next door to ours in, near Alfred. Lady Young never forgave me for defeating Ian Wilson. Is that right? Never. She's not the only person, as it happens. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. Yes, it's been quite a long journey, that um, first pre-selection into the current time. But she never, never forgave me. Is that right? Isn't that funny? She used to write letters <laughs> criticising me right what? up to the end. I thought, hmm, that's so odd. I mean, I'd never even met her. Anyway, that's life. So, But they were kind of more prevalent. It was a common thing in
0: Australia. I mean, you know, it was. People in business and so forth now they get ACs, which are equivalent, really. Which is
1: fine. Which is a good thing. Um, and um, so that, but I only raised the story about becoming Sir Linton Crosby because um, it just indicates how much you've become part of that English or that British political scene on the conservative side, which suggests to me you're one of our most important exports to the UK, probably more so than. Barry Humphries. Are you the most <laughs> successful Australian no, since
0: Barry Humphreys? Barry Humphries is incredibly successful. You still see him at a lot of events and he's Is that right? Large as life. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of Australians you bump into, the the ones you'd expect like Jermaine Greer and Barry Humphries and right. so forth. But lots of lots of Australian Australians in business. A lot of people who incredibly successful as lawyers, physiotherapists. At, right. An Australian woman runs probably the most successful and well regarded physiotherapist uh, centre in in the UK. Yeah, it's one of those things. I think one of the advantages is, I mentioned Salon the Wise before, and give advice when you give advice, seek to help, not to please. You can say things as an Australian when you're giving advice, you know, quite directly, which needed to be done and needs to be done, particularly in political circumstances, during Mm. campaigns and things. As an Australian, you can get away with things that British would neither feel comfortable saying, nor would they say. No. and and that's I've always found that that's been helpful. So you know, give it to them the way you see it, which is a quality that I think Australians do possess. Yeah. And the first campaign I worked on was Boris Johnson's campaign for to be mayor of,
1: which was London. successful.
0: Was well, successful. I'd never met him until I flew back to London. I was in I was actually in South Australia at Mount Barker. I got a phone. Was he a
1: little shambolic?
0: Yeah, I would not uh, shamb- a bit shambolic. Would be sufficient. Little doesn't come into it. Um, so sorry, you were no, no. I was just saying that. Uh, so I got a call saying, "Would I help him?" I, I, I'd I'd seen him announce he was going to be mayor, and it was shambolic. He rode to a press conference on his bike and sort of half knocked over a couple of journalists and all that sort of thing. And I said, uh, Dawn, at the time, my wife, we we're in uh, we were in the UK at the time when they announced he was running. I said, there is no chance that guy's ever going to be mayor of London. Um, but within six months or so, he was and he showed a quality which is quite rare and that is an ability to reach people from all strata's of society all walks of life you know he just has that ha- has had that that ability right and so he won an unexpected victory in 2008 and did so again in 2012
1: because london's not really a, liber- a conservative town is it there's no, a very really.
0: strong labor presence in well there. it's 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 changed it's changed a lot too over that in the, even in the eight years that he was mayor, it changed a lot. Mm-hmm. It's an international city. Mm-hmm. It's more like a city-state than it is even, you know, part of the rest of the UK. And you're right. I mean, it's um, quite distinctly different from the rest of the UK. Mm. And uh, he was able to, you know, reach across the, the aisle or the border or whatever it is uh, mm. and, and get people to support him. And it always struck me, it was weird. I... um you know, going in a cab with him or something like that, you'd see guys with these rather become rather annoying features of politics, as well as everything else. These coloured vests, you know, these you, oh, know, yes. you know the the bright neon or yes. yellow or orange high vis high vis jackets. Mm. Um, they'd be sitting in a hole, pulling some cable through or something, and they'd pop their head up and say, "Hey, Boris!" Right, and um you could tell something was going to happen. You could tell that he made. In a particular way, which is hard to quantify, he was able to make a connection to people, uh, which, of course,
1: served him well. And you anticipate that he'll keep going? I mean, does, I must admit, I was shocked after he came out of COVID. He hasn't looked quite the same robustness in his health since then. No, that clearly knocked him about, yeah. you know. COVID has been a massive change to the year. We could talk about that all day. Theresa May, whole different ball game to Boris Johnson or Michael Howard, for that matter, takes over, has a, Tremendous majority, completely squandered it in the election as Prime Minister. What went so horribly wrong for Theresa May? Well, it was a
0: difficult election, there's no doubt about that. But
1: why did she have it?
0: That's an interesting question and that's sort of at the core of part of the problem. As it happens, I was uh, at our farm uh, celebrating my wife's 60th birthday and uh, uh, having just been in Fiji celebrating her 60th birthday was becoming, I probably shouldn't have mentioned the age, sorry about that, um, <laughs> trying to um, trying to have some time with the family. And, and I had a series of calls from people saying, would I come over and run the campaign? I said I wouldn't run it because it was my wife's birthday and I'd given a commitment to spend time with the family for a few weeks. But when that was all over, I'd come and help. And so we were involved in that campaign. We were talking about expectations previously, and expectations were a big factor in the outcome because everyone assumed that the Tories were going to win. Everyone. Mm. Expectations, even on polling day, were higher than 70% in the polling that we did that the Tories were going to win the election. And that meant people were banking the fact that Tories were going to win, which meant they were looking at what the Tories were going to do. And um, it had been the case that Theresa May had said several times, she wasn't going to call an early election. Then she did. Now, if you call an early election, you've got to have a good reason for doing it, and a good reason is not I can increase my majority because that's not relevant to the voters. That's just about you and your own political fortunes. So I think one of the first problems was coming up with a suitable reason as to why to have an election now other than you thought you'd do really well and lock in a big majority. Mm. And the only argument that was acceptable to people as to why to have an election now was that she needed to be able to demonstrate to the EU that she'd have a strong hand and the backing of the British people to achieve reform and negotiate a good deal for Britain. That was the only argument that even sort of half worked because most people didn't want an early election. No. They just didn't want it. They didn't see the need for it.
1: Early elections virtually never work.
0: No, often they don't because... They look palpably transparent, or they are palpably transparent in terms of what you're trying to achieve. Same that thing happened
1: to Hawke, remember, in 84. Yeah,
0: yeah, he got, he got a big nosebleed from he Andrew Peacock. Mm. So so uh, firstly, it was an early election. You had to have a good reason for calling it. The only reason that worked, I mean, I've heard people say, oh, she should have just talked about the people she wanted to help and her plan to improve Britain. Well, she didn't have to have an election to support and help the people no. that she wanted to help. It looked cynical. It, so unfortunately, it looked cynical. But but also there were very high expectations. Everybody thought they were go, the Tories were going to win. Everybody thought Labor under Jeremy Corbyn would barely walk and chew gum at the same time and therefore... Which is actually true. <laughs> well, they certainly <laughs> swallowed the gum since. <laughs> yes. um, didn't think that that Corbyn would do a very good job. As it happened, he conducted himself very well and, and so they gave him points for conducting himself well. And then because the Tories, the people thought that Conservatives were going to win easily people looked very critically at the Conservative Party manifesto. And in that manifesto were some quite radical changes, including one that became branded as the dementia tax, which was a requirement for people to sell their family home in order that they could get suitable aged care and so forth. And so there were some quite unpopular policies, the ending of school meals for, or means testing, I think it was of, of school meals for, for children uh, and so forth. And, um, That led people to think, crikey, they're going to win and they're going to do these things to me. I'm not going to give them a big majority. I don't want these things. So that's really what happened. It goes to that point of expectations we talked about.
1: And, of course, now, well, she was, the rest is history. She's sort of catastrophically immolated, really.
0: She was a very good Home Secretary. People Mm -hmm. gave her points for competence and and delivery and, you know, sort of sensible and considered decision-making. But, you know, leadership is... Sometimes, well, leadership, not sometimes, leadership always requires a unique set of qualities and um, uh, it wasn't to be in her case.
1: Mm. It certainly had a political impact, though. I mean, there's been a rallying around the flag impact. Of yeah,
0: that's exactly right. I, I think people need to be cautious, So You sort of get the sense that people think, ah, oh, you know, I saw read something from somebody who is a journalist whose initials are often, he often goes by his initials. Right. And uh, I saw him this week saying, you know, the fact is the the Liberals can't lose the next election or Scott Morrison is guaranteed to win the next election, a bit like there were journalists for, before the last federal That's election Shorten. here saying, saying yeah. Shorten's, we all know Shorten's a shoe-in to win the next election. When people start saying that, you should get very nervous very quickly because in Queensland, uh, Anna, Anastasia Palaszczuk won, but she's in the middle of the pandemic and people are rallying around the flag and they they want to see it through, they don't, to quite an old Labor slogan, don't see much sense in changing horses midstream. Mm. But I think once you're through, uh, once it's behind us, mm.
1: I think it's a different kettle of fish. And there'll be a lot of uh, discussion. I mean, for South Australia in the national election, there in 2022, I would anticipate we'll have recovered from a, the health impacts and the virus will hopefully, the vaccine will hopefully have been quite prevalent. Yeah. But the economic impact will still be being felt. It's going to be ling- it's going to linger for a long time. Everyone who has to wait till twenty twenty two, like um, the prime minister and the premier of South Australia, Stephen Marshall, they've they, they've got to actually do the clean up part, the economic part, which is well, going to be tricky.
0: Yeah,
1: every, politically, it's going to be
0: tricky. It is, yeah. and people, you know, the best analogy, and you've probably heard people say it, is Churchill won the Second World War, mm, and then the they ditched him out in almost a record
1: defeat Amazing. shortly exactly. thereafter. It's so incredible. you don't want to assume anything. You've got no. to you've got to earn support. Anybody who says an election is a shoe in or they're certain of the result, especially one that's 80 months away, yeah. has no idea what they're talking about. No, no well, this I remember when Malcolm, a journalist doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when Malcolm um, Turnbull became prime minister, there was a column in the Canberra Times, I think, by a quite well-respected journalist saying that he would be in government for 20 years because he would right? he would marry the Labor um centre and the coalition together and Labour would never get in. You three years later it was all over again. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Mm.
1: He should have probably gone to that election straight after he took over
0: his leader, I think. Well a lot of people hypothesise if he did he would have had a pretty good chance. I think, I would think have that, a majority you, you mentioned polls. I mean the thing about Malcolm is, you know, he's an incredibly able person. I think he's a friend of both of us. Mm. But one of the things that polls must when they report when his favourability, because he was highly favorable, you remember you would have mm, thought mm. he was here for a long time. Mm. His favorability was driven largely by people who weren't going to vote Liberal. Yeah, right. So when it looked when you looked at his personal favorability, it was very high, but when you also looked at how people were going to vote, a lot of the people who rated him personally very favorably still would you, know, you would yeah you, know, you wouldn't get them to ever vote
1: Liberal yeah. Yes, it's it was a very tricky time, and he still remains popular, of course, with those exact same people. But again, not with the voters that mattered on the 2016 election when we scraped into power. But will the Crosbys stay in London, or do you have a longer term plan to come back and live in Australia again? I
0: still call Australia home. I mean, it's it's uh, well for me. You know, I'm Australian, and I'll always be Australian. Been very fortunate to you know operate in other parts of the world to. To look at election campaigns in, you know, Zimbabwe and Iraq.
1: Golly.
0: St. Vincent and Grenadines or uh, um, or in the UK or the US or wherever it might be. Malta. Malta, yeah. You've been all over the place. <laughs> yep, yep. And, and, you know, great opportunities, really interesting. I mean, nothing. some fundamental truths remain the same, and that is personal relevance is the big driver of people's vote. What matters to them and their lives and their families is critically needs to be critically addressed. Politicians, for the most part, are overwhelmingly good people trying to do the right thing by their communities and motivated by good intent when they run, at least initially. Uh, But I think most times things can be different culturally. You know, you're running an election campaign in a place like Iraq Mm. is so, so different to running something in the United Kingdom
1: which election campaign did you run in Iraq? Oh,
0: this was a few years ago. We we, we, we ran a campaign for a candidate. I mean, how exciting. It, you get a, well, that's one way of putting it, but it gives you a different perspective. Uh, sure. You know, that we were using a subcontractor to do the polling. Some of their people were killed for going, you know, mm-hmm. asking people questions about how got they're it. going to vote and so forth. Uh, and one day the guys, we got a message through, they couldn't get all the billboards up because they'd been under rocket attack. And so it, it sort of puts things into perspective. But the interesting thing is that it can be in Iraq in the middle or coming out of a war or it can be, you know, uh, in the United Kingdom when the economy is going particularly well. At the end of the day, whilst culturally things are different, the things that drive people are exactly the same. Mm. And, you know, texts has been involved in campaigns in Fiji. The aspiration of a person in Fiji is exactly the same as the aspiration of somebody in Australia or the US or anywhere else. It might be expressed in different ways. Uh, And you may have to communicate in different ways, but people just want to live in peace, to have a chance of a better life for themselves and their kids. And if when you're communicating and involved in politics, you remember that and try to communicate that and govern in that way, then you generally connect with the voters.
1: Was the Iraqi campaign in Baghdad or Fallujah or Mosul, or was no, it? No, it was across uh, across the whole of the It's one of those Iraq.
0: campaigns you don't want to talk about. At one stage, the candidate said, "I've got uh, I've got armed guards outside, and I know where your family live." Oh, great! And if you don't lift your game, they'll be visited. So it's it, terrible. It was a different sort of experience.
1: Golly, beat the theatrics of some candidates, I suppose. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I can't even imagine what it would be like trying to poll in an Iraqi election campaign. It must have been. Almost impossible. People were killed, as you pointed out. I mean, it's quite a task to take on. Yeah,
0: it's interesting because actually the funny thing is a lot of people in difficult situations, I've got a mate who does a lot of work for um, various government agencies in the US and the UK, polling in places like, you know, Libya. Really? Um, Iran, well, not Iran, Iraq, Syria, even now. Really? Yeah, because people it people for the most part, they want their concerns known and understood. That's one of the good things about research. It, opinion research provides the opportunity for ordinary citizens to share their views. It's not a bad thing. Sometimes it's misrepresented, and you know, the media long ago forgot how to use it or what it really does, but, and so misreport it, as in the US elections. But, but it can be a good thing. And, and so, funnily enough, you find people are willing to participate and share their views as long as they know that you know, they're not exposing themselves in some of those more dangerous places as a consequence,
1: they're all up for talking. Obviously in recent times we've had the um, US election and the end of um, President Trump. I'm interested in your views. I mean, we're obviously both Liberals and uh, if we were in America we'd probably be Republicans. I wouldn't think we'd be very right-wing Republicans because their right-wing is a bit different to what we regard as a right-wing. I think that's true. Do you think the Republican Party will take back control over there the way they've always been since really Eisenhower and Reagan and the Nixon sort of Republicans? Or do you think the Trump phenomenon is going to continue to permeate the Republican Party for the next few years? So is the establishment Republicans, are they going to be able to get it back under control? Or are we going to have this Trump sort of craziness in the Republican Party in the long term, do you think?
0: Well, Trump was a disruptor. That's, you know, by nature a disruptor. And, you know, a lot of people say it's incongruous that the evangelical lobby, which is very big in, in the US, you know, some estimates put, put numbers of like 60 million on the number of evangelical Christians there are in the US. Wow. It seems incongruous. It does seem, you'd think it was incongruous that people who have those uh, Christian views um, would support somebody like Donald Trump has been married multiple times mm. and, you know, express. He's had a, a- colourful life. Colourful, expressive face hair and life um, expresses himself uh, expresses himself in particular ways, and I had a conversation with someone who used to work in one of the Republican establishment White Houses, if you like. And this person said, "Well, I'm only voting for him to get what I want attention uh, being given to, given that attention." Right. So, so he was a device. He was a device. In, to shake things up, and by any measure, he did that. Yes. And so, if you were in one of those Rust Belt states that and switched in the previous election, you know, you'd always voted Democrat, but the car industry was going down the toilet and you were angry that no one was listening, the Democrats had taken you for granted. A vote for Donald Trump was a device to try to get attention on those issues, and he might just might give attention to them, but it certainly would also shake up the Democrats. People understand the political process a lot more than they did back with some of those names you mentioned. So how they use their votes is quite different and I so I think we're we're going to continue to endure a period of disruptive politics and if people feel that their concerns are still being overlooked and ignored and that and it's interesting because when we um, we did some research in some of the states in the US in the, the lead-up to the election, just for our own sake, to find out what was going on and why.
1: Did you do anything in Georgia?
0: To be honest, I can't remember. But what we did uh, find was that one of the reasons people voted for Trump was he was a voice against the woke agenda. Yeah, right. And so it wasn't about a policy as such, but sort of his attitude. And these people were wanting him to to empower him to sort of push back against those people who they thought had... Crazy views or views they didn't agree with, so I, th- I think that's going to endure. And social media actually adds to it. So you, social media is is a you know, obviously a powerful tool of disruption, and that disrupt. You know, Trump was a disruptor. Biden is not a disruptor. Whether someone who's been part of the political establishment, whether Republican or Democrat, can withstand the force, all those disruptive forces. I don't know.
1: It'd be very interesting to see. I'm actually. Um... I'm not displeased about the election of Joe Biden, just from an Australian point of view, because of the orthodoxy that he'll now bring to our alliance, which has been worrying me, quite frankly, in the last four years. Not because I think that the US has lost interest in our alliance, they certainly haven't, but just because Trump is so unpredictable that I was always a bit worried that if something went wrong, he wouldn't actually react like we'd have expected the United States to react, which is, I think, the worry of most of the Western allies. I only asked about Georgia because it's the first sort of southern, very southern state, true southern state, that that switched mm. to um to to Biden. the Democrats, yes. to Biden. It hasn't been won by the Democrats since Bill Clinton uh, a long time ago. And uh it just interested me that it was so different, different outrider to all the other southern states that you know, that border it, Alabama and Arkansas and Florida, even Florida. Yeah. So I'm just I was interested in whether you had any sort of um no, look, in I the think no, the nothing particular
0: them. other than um, it's sometimes hard for Australians to, re, to, rec- to sort of take this into account, but we have compulsory voting. They have voluntary voting. Mm. By the time of, you're coming to the, the actual election, it's all about turning out your people, and so organisation becomes even more important. It's always being organised is obviously always important in the campaign, but, but, you know, your capacity on the ground becomes very important with voluntary voting because you've got to turn out people who aren't being compelled by the law to vote, and they can decide to or not. And so whilst they can be affected by the national campaign, localised campaigning, targeted campaigning, uh, can be can be very, very influential. So you don't know what happened on the ground
1: in Georgia either. Well, I think what I did hear from a friend in the United States was that the Obama machine that had got him into the nomination and then the presidency twice... Supported Biden in a way that they hadn't supported Hillary Clinton. True,
0: and 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 you know they didn't come in behind Biden when he wanted to run when Clinton ran. Mm. They were unsure, and that's why there was a lot of support given to to H- Hillary, but not to the same extent uh, as then came in
1: behind Biden this mm. time. And that's obviously made an enormous difference on the ground. Well, thank you, Linton. It's been great to um to chat. Good to see you. And. Uh... Look, I think there's such a place of political strategists and nobody knows who they are. Uh They're these hidden figures. It's a good good position to be in. In the shadows, exactly. So I brought you out of the shadows uh, for our listeners and it's been great to catch up, so thank you very much. Thanks, Christopher. Pine Time was presented by me, Christopher Pine. Audio production by Darcy Thompson, produced by Matt Dwyer and the ever-patient executive producer, Jennifer Goggin.